All right, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Prairie Sound. Why don't you go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, if you throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. If you just forgot your Bible, didn't bring a Bible, if you don't own a Bible for sure, raise your hand and, and grab one of these as our gift to you. Grab a copy of God's Word. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in a couple places in Scripture this morning, but we're going to be starting in Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing on in this series uh, called Questioning God. And what we're doing, we're, we've been asking and, and digging into God's Word to answer questions that, that a lot of people have about Christianity. And some of the questions are questions that, that we would have, right? That maybe you've got some of these questions. Some of them for sure are questions that your neighbors or your family or your friends, they're for sure asking. So we've gone through kind of those top questions that everybody seems to ask. And we've, we've talked through some theology. We've talked through a lot of practical things as well. Well, this morning... Another one of those practical questions that gets asked a lot of times about God. And here's the question. The question is this. Why does God care who I sleep with? I mean, the question is, why, why does God, why do Christians care so much about sex? Why is that something that they talk about so much? Why is it a sin that they seem to elevate so much? And, and as we jump into this this morning, here's the thing. It's a question that gets asked in our culture, but, but it's not a new question. In fact, when Christianity began to spread in the very first century, the, the culture of that time saw the church, the Christians, as this, this culturally subversive movement. You, you see, in, in early Roman culture, Christianity stood out in three main ways. There are three ways that it really stood out. The first way is this, the way Christians died. See, they were being persecuted. They were being dragged to their death. And as they were dying, the Christians were singing hymns. They, they were praising God. They had, were full of joy, and the culture could not figure that out. That's not how you die. Christians were dying with joy. Two other things that, that really shook up the culture of that time, and that's this, how they viewed money and how they viewed sex. How they viewed money was so countercultural. How they viewed sex was so countercultural. In fact, one ancient writer in the first century talks about Christians this way. He says this there are people who share their table, but not their bed. People who share their table, but not their bed. What's he saying? He's saying this. It was a culture where money was sacred. You hoarded it. You kept it. You did not share your goods, your food, your money, because money was sacred. But also in that culture, sex was mundane. So, so you'd be selfish with your money, but very open with sex. And Christianity steps into that culture and says the opposite. No, no, money's mundane. We don't care about money. I mean, just give it away. If somebody's in need, we're going to help them. We're going to reach out to them. But, but sex was sacred. Only shared between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And so as we dig into this question this morning, it's interesting. This is not actually a new question. But, but the Christians in the first century must have lived this out with so much joy and wisdom and as, they, as they lived it out because history tells us that the early Christians were mocked for these things. And yet Christianity spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. So if you think about it, here, here we are in our current culture. A culture where statistics would tell us that, that giving is on the decline that generosity is not <clears throat> a large part of our culture any longer, but we're really generous with giving away our sex. 
You start to think about that, 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 that we, we like to think that we live in this modern, real liberated culture, but it's actually a fairly regressive culture. We're going all the way back to the first century. So if you're a, a follower of Christ, the challenge that the church had in the first century, same challenge we have today, which is this, are we going to be squeezed into what culture says is the normal, or are we going to live a radically counterculture way of life that transforms, has a revolutionary impact like it did in the first century? Because our culture today tells us that, that sex is just a physical act. It's no big deal. Like, why are Christians so fired up about this? I mean, forget the fact that, that psychologists, psychiatrists, sociologists today are now agreeing with what the scriptures have been telling us for thousands of years that, yeah, sex is more than a physical act. <clears throat> There's something going on with sex to make it more than just this mundane physical act. Because here's the thing if sex was no big deal, if it's just a matter of what well, you hook up with people, there's no, nothing wrong with it, just something we do. If sex was no big deal, if it was just a physical act, why is it that when a child is sexually abused, when they become an adult and they start to connect the dots, it's devastating, so difficult to shake off? Why would rape be so much more damaging and harmful to a woman than just physical assault? Why would adultery completely destroy a marriage? Why would it completely damage the people in that marriage in a way that nothing else does in a marriage? Why is it that most people, when they talk about their greatest regrets, listen, when someone comes in to, 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 to talk to me and to, hey, I need some counsel, and they come in and they begin with saying, listen, I've got something I want to share that I've never shared with anybody else. I know what it's going to be about. It's hardly ever, well, I once cheated on some tests in school. It's usually something sexual. And so this morning, as we jump into this question this morning, if you're taking notes, really our first point is that question, why does God care so much about sex? The first reason is this, if you're taking notes, because it's more than just physical. It's more than just physical. When God designed sex, now listen, you understand that, that God is the creator and the designer. Sex was not our idea. We didn't make this up. It's not like God created Adam and Eve and turned to do something and looked back and was like, oh, what are you guys doing? Right? No, no, he, he created it, right? He was the one who came up with the idea, who invented it, who designed it. And it says in Genesis that a man should leave his, 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 his mother and his father. And what do you do? He, he joins together and marriage with a woman and they become one flesh. They become one flesh. There's this, this mysterious soul-level joining that happens in sex. In fact, when, when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church that was steeped in this culture of the first century, and he's, he's trying to explain to them, emphasize that sex is deeper than just this physical act, he quotes from Genesis where it says, a man and a woman become one flesh. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He says, the one who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. He says, listen, when you have sex, you become one body with the person you have sex with. And in fact, I mean, Paul takes the cheapest, lowest form of sex. He says, even there, even that kind of sex, there's a joining. 
It's much more than just biology. There's a, a deep soul level unity going on. And so there's this, this purpose that God created as he designs this, a purpose for a, a man and woman in marriage. And there's no place in all of scripture where there's any place where God sanctions an expression of our sexuality anywhere else in the context of marriage. And so when we look outside of marriage for that, that yearning that we want to meet that need, and scripture says, listen, when you do that, it doesn't help you, it actually hurts you. It hardens your heart. It, it rots your soul. And in fact, the same passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the prostitute, he says, listen, when you're uniting yourself with someone that you haven't committed yourself to in marriage, he says, you're damaging your own body. You're rotting your soul. You're killing yourself from the inside out. Because sex was designed to be this result of this intimate connection where you're focused on, committed to that one person, that, that, that spouse that is all your focus, all your desires are on your spouse. So that all that sexual energy and passion poured out on your spouse and your spouse alone. Not somebody else's spouse. Not some other person. Not some imaginary person in your mind. Not, not, not some, some person in pornography. No, it's to be poured out on each other. It's God's purpose for sex. That we would, in marriage, become one flesh, emotionally, relationally, physically, we become one. And when you break that marriage covenant by sharing yourself with somebody else, you're destroying the oneness that God was creating, that he intended for your marriage. And, and not only do you destroy the heart of your spouse, you're destroying your own heart. A little side note about that. If, if, if that's the purpose of sex then I would say that the, the physical oneness, if it's deeper than physical, then, then for that physical oneness to happen in marriage, if you're like, man, I would hope that in my marriage that we just have a, a great physical life, a great sex life, then, then make sure that there's also the emotional, relational, and spiritual connection, the, a deep connection on a soul level where you're praying with each other, where you're loving and sacrificing and caring. I mean, I'd say to guys, listen, hey, before you touch your wife's body, make sure you've touched her soul. But let's look at this passage here in Ephesians. Paul's laid out a bunch of, he's, he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and he's laid out a ton, a ton of doctrine leading up to this chapter five and he's, he's laying out stuff of this is who you are in Christ. So, so when you lay down your life and give your life to Christ, you become this new creation. You're adopted, you're redeemed, you're changed, you're, you're made new, you become this child of God and then he starts to say this is what it'll look like in your church and then chapters five and six, he goes this is what it practically looks like in your family, in your workplace, in your marriage but before he gets there, he starts with sexual sin. Verse 1, he says this in chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now he, he's going to get into the negative, but before he hits the negative, he starts with a positive. He goes, this is who you are. You're a beloved child of God, and as a beloved child of God, imitate your father. Be like your father. Now, now how do I do that? How do I be like my father? Well, he tells us, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I mean, Jesus gave himself up to God the Father. He surrendered to the will of God, saying, it's not my will, God, it's your will. And listen, we do the same. That's how we imitate. That's how we live this out. Verse three says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
Now notice what he says among saints. Now when, when you read saints in the New Testament, don't think of the Catholic idea of super Christian, right? No, saints is just you and me. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've been redeemed by Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you've been changed. Saint means one set apart. You've been set apart as a child of God. So when you read saint, think Christian. And he says, Christian, follower of Christ, set apart for the glory of God, there's some things that you don't participate in. And the first one here is sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word translated sexual immorality is one word. It's, it's porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. I mean, how interesting is that, that, that the, the porn industry just calls it for what it is. We are sexual immorality. That, that's what that word is here. God's word says we should have nothing to do with it. He also goes on and says, in all impurity. And impurity there, it means mixed, would be a literal translation. What well, the idea is, is I'm going to hold one hand of Christ here, but I'm going to hold the other hand of what I want over here. So I'm going to have one foot in the gospel and one foot in the world, in my choices, in what culture says. And, and the scripture says you can't do that. You can't be mixed like that. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. I love Jesus, my, my sexual ethic, that's my thing, man. I'm going to do whatever I want. Now, how hard is this in our culture to not live mixed? I mean, think about it as a young person, as a student. I mean, just start asking students what it's like in high school. Where, where, where hooking up is just the norm. Whether you just do that, that's just what we do in school. That's just, we just, if you have a relationship, this is where it's going to go. Think about how hard it is for even a married couple or a young person in a culture that, that doesn't view sex as sinful any longer, where, where pornography is instant access. I mean, how hard to be pure. Where, where that lust you have, you can have it taken care of right away. Where sex is just casual. But in the midst of the difficulty of living in our culture, God's word so clearly calling us, no, we walk differently. We're imitators of God. We're beloved children. And Paul says, listen, I don't care what culture is saying or doing. You and I are children of God. We walk differently. Now, now is this important? Is, is, these, is these sins talked about here? Are they important? Well, look at verse 4. He says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. He's like, don't even joke about this stuff. That's, that's how serious God is. He go, goes on in verse 5, for you may be sure of this. Listen, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Whatever the culture says, oh, but it's okay, but I don't think it means this. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a huge deal to God. Now, why is it a huge deal to God? Well, first, because like we said, it's more than just a physical act. Secondly is this, because as a Christian, as a child of God, you're united with Christ. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. And so what does that mean? It means that wherever you go, when you sin sexually, you take Jesus with you. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, he says, Don't you know that we're all members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
He says, never. Like in this very real sense, right? So, so marriage is this picture of it that, that two people become one and it's this picture pointing to the fact that as, as followers of Christ, we become one with Christ. So that's the picture of, of what sex and marriage is. So the, the spiritual reality that Paul's saying then is this, that, that when, when you sin, you're using Christ's body for sin. You're forcing Jesus into that act. Because Scripture says as a follower of Christ, you're in Christ. Christ is in you. So when you sin sexually outside of God's plan for it, you're taking Christ with you. Why else is God serious about this? Well, third is this, because God cares for us. Because God cares for us. Let me say it this way. God has a plan and a purpose with sex. There's, there's purposes for it. One is we get to have families. We get to grow a family. Another one is this. It's enjoyable. I mean, God's pretty clear about that. I mean, just read Song of Solomon, right? Unless you're a junior high boy, then stay away from that for a while, right? I'm just kidding, right? You, you read through Scripture. It's enjoyable. Proverbs 5.19 says this. It talks about a husband delighting in his wife's body. There's a joy to it. There's an enjoyment in it. Here's another. It forms a, a unity, a bond in marriage. Right? There's this beautiful picture. In fact, if you got Ephesians 5, look at verse 31. The other page, it says, Therefore a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, talking about getting married, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying, listen, this is what marriage has always been about. It's been a mystery for a while, but this, now it's been revealed. It's this picture of Christ's love for the church. So God has a, a plan and a purpose in it. He created it for a purpose. And I'm thinking about this, that, that if, if he created it, he had a purpose for it. Well, what other things have been created in our world? I started thinking about stuff that's been made. I, I thought of the electric iron. Crazy, I don't know why. The electric iron, invented in 1882 by a guy named Henry W. Seeley. Now, Henry created the iron for a very specific purpose, to iron things, right? I mean, that's, that's the purpose of it. Now, now, you can try to use your iron for other things. When I was in college, the, the dorm we lived in had an iron. We didn't use it because why do we care about wrinkled shirts? We fried eggs on it. You could do that, all right? Heads up, it ruins the iron, all right? And the eggs are pretty gross when you think about where that iron's been, right? You could do that. You could use your iron to, to heat up your hands on a cold morning. Not a great use of it. You, you could try to use your iron to heat up your bath water when you were in the bathtub and ruins the iron and kills you. So not a great use for it. You, you could take that iron and say, you know what? going to play football with this iron. I, I think it's kind of aerodynamic, and we're going to go play football. Listen, you catch the, the iron wrong, it's going to do some damage probably to your head. You'll be knocked out cold, because the iron has a specific purpose. Now, now imagine you're outside with your friends. You're playing a great game of iron football, and somehow I, I find a way to raise Henry Seeley from the dead, and I bring him by your football game, and he comes up, and he goes, hey, uh, uh, you're about ready to, to throw that iron to another receiver to knock him out cold, and as you go, he goes, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what I created the iron for. I mean, in that moment, would you feel limited? Do you think, this Henry guy's just trying to keep me from having some freedom here. 
He, 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 he doesn't want me to enjoy this iron, obviously. Like, well, like, would you feel restricted in that moment when he says, no, there's another purpose for this? Or would you say, Henry, I, I appreciate you as the creator and the designer, but I, I don't appreciate you stepping in here and ruining our football game by restricting how we would use what you created and designed for a purpose. You wouldn't do that, right? You'd be like, Henry, thanks. He goes, yeah, let me show you what you use it for. You, you can iron your shirt so it's flat. If you grew up in the 70s, you would iron your hair straight, right, ladies? No, okay, right? You would iron decals on your shirt. He would show you all these things you could use it for, right? This is what I designed it for. This is the purpose of it. It's not a limitation. And listen, sex is the same way. Sex has a creator and a designer. God created it. He designed it for a specific purpose. And when you experience it in the way he created and designed it for, in the confines of what he created for in marriage, it's the most beautiful experience this side of heaven, maybe. But when you take it outside of God's plans and God's design, it becomes horribly destructive. You're playing football with an iron. I mean, at best, it doesn't work so well. At worst, it's soul-destroying. So when God says, hey, listen, don't do this, what he's saying is don't hurt yourself. When you experience this, how I designed it, it's the greatest. And I'm, I'm not limiting you. I'm telling you this because I love you, God says. I was reading a story just this week about a, a movie producer. And he decided to get into the, to the porn industry to, to make some money. And, and so he began to produce porn films. And as he did that, he, he began to be drawn to what, was, what he was filming. And, and he decided, you know what, I, I think that my marriage is pretty boring. And I, I want to do these things. And so he began to have sex with different porn stars. His marriage fell apart, obviously. And he began to continue to pursue after, and he, and, and he thought, I, I want to get more out of this than I probably had with my wife. And what he said was, he found that as he started doing this more and more, so many different women, he found it was empty. It, it, it could never come close to comparing to the intimacy that he had with his wife. And he said this, he quoted this, he says, porn turns sex into a commodity, it reduces the great mystery and sanctity of human sexuality to a trivial activity, something to be bought and sold. Sex outside of God's plan, the one who created passion, the one who created intimacy, it's not going to satisfy. The, the reality of Scripture the reality of over two decades that I've been in ministry dealing with young people and married people is the fact that sex outside of how God designed it at best doesn't work. At worst, it is soul-destroying. So let's take our, our remaining time here, and, and I, wanna, I want us to tackle a couple of specific issues of, that, we would, that we would come against as we talk about sex, and, and we could spend a lot of time here. We could spend a sermon series on each one, but in fact, even this morning as I was planning out what I was going to preach today, I was just you know, getting all ready going, okay, I can't wait to preach. I called a bit of an audible on myself this morning early and said, you know what? I got to change how I was going to preach this. Had it all ready to go, and I said, I got to take more time with this. So I was going to cover two things this morning. Instead, we're going to spread the series out a little longer. We're going to move it to one more Sunday. And rather than cover both of these, I'm only going to cover one. And here are the two things I wanted to talk about. 
I want to talk this morning about homosexuality and pornography. Now, why would I choose those two things? Here's why. Because homosexuality, I think, is, is so misunderstood in the church. I, I think it's such a, a divisive topic in the church. So I want us to look at what does Scripture say about it? And then secondly, I want to look at pornography next week. Why? Because I think it's the most destructive sin in our church today. It's the most prevalent and destructive sin. Now when I say that, I, I sometimes talk about the church, and I'm talking about the church globally or the North American church. Listen, I'm saying that here. Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound, it would be the most prevalent destructive sin in our church. We need to talk about it. So we're going to do that next week, so come back next week. Now listen, it seems like it's going to be a real heavy subject to cover, but listen, when you, when you hear what God's Word has to say, but also recognize that there's hope and there's freedom, there's liberation, there's healing, we're going to talk about that next week. But for right now, if you're taking notes, our second point this morning is this, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What about homosexuality? Flipping your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I was quoting a lot from that earlier, we're going to jump there now for the rest of this sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. And as we talk about this, here's what I recognize. <coughs> this is an emotionally charged topic. I want to handle this topic with, 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 with great care, with great respect. Here's what I believe. I believe that we can disagree with each other and still have the highest respect and love for each other. I believe that as Christians, we can do things differently than our culture. Let's not buy into this cultural myth that says, if you disagree with me, there's no way you can respect me and love me. Culture's trying to sell us this. It's, it's the massive norm right now in our culture. I mean, if you don't get this, if, you, if you're not following U.S. politics right now, I mean, people are blowing up their friendships and their families because they disagree about the person they voted for. That's what our culture says. You can't disagree with me about important things and still respect me. It's a myth. So this morning, I want us to, to look into something that there may be disagreement on, but to recognize that we can still love and respect. I also want to be sensitive here because this isn't just a theological discussion we're talking about, but this is very real. For some of us, I mean, I have family members and friends, and so do you, who, who this subject would, would, would impact. Some of you, this morning, it's very real to you because it's where you are right now. <clears throat> it's not friends and family members, but this impacts you personally. So what do I want to do? I want to unpack what the Bible says. I, I want to do so pastorally and carefully. I also want to talk about this. The second thing we're going to do, we're going to talk about how the church has responded to same-sex attraction how we fumbled in this as a church. The church globally has not done well here, and so the, the last part of this message will just be a lot of, we're sorry. Now, now what does the Bible actually say? And, I mean, the question that could be asked is, hey, are, are Christians anti-homosexual? I would say, no, we aren't anti-anyone. God is an anti-anyone. God, God created you. God loves you. God sent Christ to die for you and calls you to himself. And he doesn't call you when you're perfect and have everything figured out. But God steps into all of our brokenness and confusion and mess and steps in and calls you to him for wholeness. I mean, I say it so many times. I say you don't, come to the, you don't get yourself cleaned up to come to the cross. You come to the cross as you are, and it's there you're made new. 
Not cleaned up, you're made new. I think the underlying question, though, when you ask, are Christians anti-homosexual, is, is this, hey, hey, does the Bible say, do you think that same-sex attraction is sin? Let me start here. I think that anything outside of God's design for sex is sin. And I, I mean, I can't change that. I've said this before. I'm not the most bold preacher in the world, but, but I will stand behind God's word with boldness. And I do recognize that, that to be a Christ follower, I have to come under the word. And there are places in God's word that I don't like personally. I would change them if I could. But we can't do that. We, we, we can't change things just because culture says change things. I can't bend things just because some religious idea I come up with. No, I come under God's word as the authority. So, so the question is, does the Bible say anything about homosexuality? It does. It doesn't say a lot. There's a lot in here about many other sins, but Scripture's not silent on it. Scripture talks about it. Where God creates sex in this context of marriage, our culture has tore sex out of marriage, out of that context, and does one of two things. Culture either devalues it, like we've said, and just makes it, it's just a physical act. The other thing culture has done has raised it up to a place where not only is it just sex, it becomes your identity. It's everything about you. Now God's word speaks into that culture. Look at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the needy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a similar list in Romans 1. And in that, Paul just lists gossipers and greedy people, selfish people. So the question we need to ask is this. Here are the questions. So is same-sex attraction sin? First point is this. I do not believe that same-sex attraction or same-sex orientation is sin. It's not sin. Look at, look at what I'm saying. Though. Be careful. Look what I'm saying. Look at the key word in verse 9. Those who practice homosexuality. If you have an attraction to the same sex, that's not sin. In the same way my attraction to women and that attraction leads me to be attracted to women other than my wife in sin, it does. The attraction in me for women is not sin. The temptation is not sin. But, but when I act on it, if I act on it in thought or in action, then it becomes sin. And God condemns anything outside of his design for sex. But listen, having an attraction or an orientation is not sin. When, the, when that attraction moves to desire and lust, yes, it is. But listen, if you're here this morning and, and, and you are, are someone who has same-sex attraction, you shouldn't feel the guilt and shame that comes with sin. If someone makes you feel that guilt and shame, they're wrong for that. I mean, this should be a subject we can talk about in church. This should be something that in our small group, you can bring this up like you bring anything else up and say, hey, this is what's going on in my heart right now. The attraction, the orientation is not sin. Second point is this, though. Homosexual acts, no matter the context, are sin. Now, let me say this as I say that. You notice in this list here, there are a lot of things listed. 
In Romans, a lot of things listed in this list. And, and what the church can do, what the church has done at times, is we lift certain sins higher. We yell louder about particular sins, and we yell about them even more. Now, does Scripture say that it's a sin? It's pretty clear. It says it right here. But the, the list includes things like greed. In Romans, it talks about gossip. I mean, do we struggle with those? Do you ever struggle with greed, with, with, with what it means to, to give away more than you want to keep? Does our church have a problem with gossip? Oh no, we don't have a problem with gossip. Now we do share a lot and long detailed prayer requests about other people, but it's not really gossip, right? No, right? We, we would battle with gossip as, as a church. <clears throat> so listen, listen, this is where the church messes this thing up. We either don't talk at all about this particular sin. We don't want to talk about homosexuality because if we do, we'll be labeled as haters and homophobes. So we either don't talk about it or the church puts so much undue focus on it over and above every other sin that we blow up our witness. We blow up our ability to ever walk alongside somebody with love and care and kindness and point them to Christ. Again, Scripture's pretty clear that homosexuality is a sin, no matter the context. <clears throat> and the question could be asked, but well, what, if we, what if we really love each other? I would say no, in the same way I would say that Hollywood that sells this weird idea with every single romantic comedy that has the same plot line, two married people, but boy, they're sure unhappy. And then the other person comes along who, <gasps> they're their real soulmate, and they really love each other. And so let's celebrate that because that's a happier ending. It's sin. It's adultery. But they really love each other. It doesn't matter. It's outside of God's plan. So it's still sin, even if it's in the context of a monogamous relationship. Number three, your sexual attraction or your sexual history does not define you. It doesn't define you. Paul lists these sins, but look what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. He said, hey, hey, church, this is who you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, listen, your identity is not based on your sexuality, your identity as a Christian. You're a son or a daughter of the King. I mean, that, that's who you are. Your past actions, your sexual orientation, it doesn't own you, it doesn't define you. God does. We have a way in church circles, though, of, of putting people into categories or putting ourselves into categories. Remember the story of, of Jesus. He's, he's standing there, and then Pharisees and a bunch of people show up dragging this adulterous woman, a woman caught in the act of adultery. They drag her and throw her at Jesus' feet and say, hey, would you judge this person? Defining her by her sexual act. She's an adulteress. I, I'm sure they would have some names for her. And why? Because just like in our culture, the, you place sex in the center of life. It's what defines you. But listen, listen, it's a small slice. What we're seeing now in our culture with sex being raised to such a high place of this is the center of everything, of who you are, it's our little slice in history. Our little slice of culture that says this, where we place identity and definition of who we are on sex. And the Pharisees, though, are doing this to this woman. Remember what Jesus said? He says, okay, how about the 
first person who has no sin in their lives, you can throw the first rock. And then it says he goes, starts to draw in the sand and say what he's drawing, and he's doodling on the sand as he says that, and, and one by one, people start to leave. And then Jesus turns to her and he says this. He says, woman, which, which is so interesting. Jesus does not define her by her sexual acts. He actually calls her woman. I mean, the, the Pharisees would have had some other pretty strong words for her, some names for her. He calls her woman. He, he, he brings out what her identity really is. You're a child of God. Sam Albury, he, he wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? He's a Christian who, who experienced the same-sex attraction, and, and he said this. He says, when someone says they're gay, they normally mean that as well as being attracted to someone of the same gender, their sexual preference is one of the fundamental ways in which they see themselves, and it's for this reason that I try to avoid using that term. He says this, I'm far more than my sexuality. And Jesus steps in with this woman and, and doesn't define her by her sexual choices. He defines her as one who is created in the image of God. Now, Christian, we do this all the time as well. It's not just one part of our culture that does this. As Christians, man, we elevate marriage to this weird place. I mean, to be fulfilled, you need to be married. Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Everything's about that, and we have to be there. And then what happens? Jesus comes along and kind of blows that up, doesn't he? Jesus, who is single for his entire life on earth, would anybody say that, yeah, Jesus probably wasn't fulfilled? He probably didn't have a lot of joy. He was totally missing out on something. In fact, in fact, Jesus is so clear about this idea of elevating something like even marriage up to this place, as amazing as it is. Listen, it's something that just points to something else. Yeah, it's great, but it's a picture that points to our connection with God, our relationship with Christ. There's this deeper meaning of marriage, but it's just a temporary symbol. I mean, there was a time where, where people came to Jesus and they, and they were trying to trap him again in some theological argument. They said, hey, Jesus, if there's a woman and she marries this guy and then he dies, and she marries another guy and then he dies, she marries another guy and then he dies, she marries another guy. Don't marry this lady, by the way, because apparently everybody dies that marries her. And they go on and on and on, right? And they say, who's she going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus what are you talking about? We're not going to be married in heaven why? Because it's a picture that points to a greater reality. When we get to heaven and we see Jesus face to face, marriage and sex will seem so much smaller. They will pale in comparison. Now saying all of this, though, it begs the question where we'd ask this, okay, but, but wait a minute, all of, saying all of that, do you go to hell for being gay? I'd say No. And how can I say that? I would say that strongly. How can I say it so strongly? Because listen, you don't go to heaven for being straight. Right? Your standing with God has nothing to do outside of what you do with Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't say to that woman who was dragged to him, hey, 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 you can't be around me with all of that stuff in your life. How about you go and get that taken care of? And then, no, no, what does he do? He does call her to live a holy life. He does tell her, go and sin no more. But he first says, I don't condemn you. Now, the order matters here. He, he doesn't say stop sinning so you can be accepted. No, the order matters because this is the gospel. It's salvation by grace where Jesus steps into our brokenness and offers us life where we lay down everything at the cross. 
I lay down every sin. I lay down everything I place my identity in. I lay down everything that I cling to. And I lay it on the cross and I repent and say, that's no longer what my life is going to be about. And Jesus makes you new. So from reading scripture, the, the reality of what God says is pretty clear. Same-sex attraction, orientation, that's not a sin. Homosexual acts, no matter the context, are a sin. Sex does not define you. All of that's so clear. But here's where we have a difficulty as Christians applying these truths. These truths that affect the lives of people with same-sex attraction so greatly. I'm telling you, the church, we have to get better at handling this topic. We have to do this so much better. We have so dropped the ball. We have so fumbled this. We need to apologize for how we've handled this. We, we need to say we're sorry for how we've messed up theology, that we've so elevated one sin to the point where some Christians would even say that, that major catastrophes in our world were caused because of homosexuality. Are you kidding me? We elevate it so high. We elevate it so high that in a small group, it would be okay to talk about any other struggle we have, any other sin. Here's what I'm battling with. And yet, would it be comfortable to say, you know what? I experienced same-sex attraction. How would that go over in a small group in a church? I pray that in our small groups, it would be different. That it would be so different. I think the church needs to apologize for how we so typically gloss over so much scripture about other sins. We read this list and narrow in, and we, we go past greed, we go past gossip, and well, the scripture's pretty clear about that. Yeah, well, scripture's pretty clear about a lot of sins. It's pretty clear when Jesus said, hey, this is what divorce looks like to do it according to scripture. Pretty limited. Hey, here's what greed looks like and what we're supposed to do to live out the gospel. Hey, here's what gossip looks like and why we're not supposed to do it. And as Christians, we say, yeah, it says that, but it's kind of nuanced. And the gay community looks and it goes, exactly, that's what we're saying. Here's what I think the issue is. I think this, that we failed as Christians to take up the cross while we tell others to take up theirs. When you, the story of, of Jesus and the, and the adulterer being brought in, I think at times we think, oh, then I think I'm Jesus in the story. We're never Jesus in the story. We're the Pharisees in that story, probably. We're all told to take up our cross. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Die to yourself. So think about it for a second. Think about what it's like for somebody with same-sex attraction to follow Jesus. Think about the cross they would bear. It's going to cost them a lot. It, it might cost them a lifetime of singleness. They may have to give up a community that has loved them and protected them and cared about them. They will have agonizing moments in their life that most of us cannot relate to. And so as the church... We need to be better at offering up our stories of here's where I've taken up my cross. And I need to hear your story to encourage me when I don't want to take up the cross, when I don't want to sacrifice my identity, when I don't want to sacrifice my things, my sin. We can't say, hey, you need to take up your cross, but, but I'm cool not to make any sacrifices and Jesus will love me just fine. 
And listen, our crosses are gonna look different. Everybody's gonna have a different cross that they're called to. But if you're not sacrificing at all for Jesus Christ, if you're not taking up the cross, listen, if you're not doing this, you'll either be so timid and shy away from this topic because you recognize, man, my hypocrisy is gonna be exposed here, so I'm gonna step back, or you'll be so harsh and judgmental. When you take up your cross, when you give up real desires, desires for safety, desires for security, desires for pleasure, desires for approval, when you lay all that and say, God, I only want to do it how you've called me to do this, it humbles you and you begin to realize how fickle you and I are as we follow Christ. And that, that we, we here we're supposed to give up everything, but we're, we're so fickle with that. And that every time I lay down my cross and don't pick it up, where's Christ? When I turned him, he's right there with grace and forgiveness. produces kindness in us. It produces grace in us because we see Jesus' grace for us when we fail. So let me ask you this. What is there in your life that's different because you're carrying a cross? What is there in your life that's different that's different because of Jesus? Or, or, or does your life pretty much look the same as anybody without Jesus? There's really not anything that you've ever had to, to give up to follow Christ. It's more just a cultural thing. What are you, by God's grace, are you bringing under the gospel, sacrificing? What in your finances? What in your relationships? What in your time? And, and then in carrying that cross that you see the sacrifices that you're making for God and you count it as joy. You say, I'm doing this because, God, you're greater. Christ, you're the greater treasure. So I'll gladly lay it down. Or, or are you living in some sort of false gospel, this cheap grace where you say, but Jesus is cool with all my sin anyway. Listen, when we don't pick up the cross, it stops us from having a voice of grace and hope into anyone's life. So listen, if you're wondering, hey, how do we speak into the gay community? How do we deal with this as a church? The first step is not gathering up all your biblical arguments for what you believe. The first step is taking up your cross and then calling others to do the same. When we do that, we're not going to get caught in this cultural dichotomy that's so forced upon us that you either have to fully agree with me and fully accept everything, or you fully reject me. And the gospel steps in, he goes, no, no, there's another way, there's a third way. It's not just fully accept or fully reject. There's a way with the gospel that you can step in with kindness and grace and love while still holding on to the truth of God's word. How can I say that and believe that so strongly? Because this is what Jesus did. You read through the New Testament. What do you see? People who were busted up and broken and pushed to the edge of society, they thought Jesus was the most loving person ever. And yet Jesus never compromised on truth either. So as Christians, what have we done? Have we... Have we held on to God's truth while also holding on to grace and love and kindness? I would say this. I think in history, in very recent history, I would say that Christians have failed in standing up for people who are being persecuted. If you think back to the early years of even the gay movement in the 70s and the 80s and the 60s, where were the Christians when, 
homosexuals are being killed because they were gay? Where, where, were the, where was the church? Where were we to stand up and say, this isn't right. These people were created in the image of God. This is not right. You can't do this. Where were we when, they would, when, when the gay community lived in fear? And listen, I'm not saying that to do this, you have to leave God's word about sex behind. But I am saying this, you can't also leave God's call to love behind either. As Christians, we need to step in with both love and with truth. What does that mean? It means simply, here, here's some simple ways. Here's one way. As Christians, we've got to stop joking about it. That it has no place here. No Christian should ever say things like, man, that's so gay. Really? As Christians, we need to create an environment of grace where when someone comes to church, it, it feels less like a job interview and more like a hospital waiting room where there's, where there's grace, where we recognize that somebody with same-sex attraction has a cross to bear that we may never understand, a cross that I would never have to bear. People applauded when I came to Christ. It was an exciting thing, man. It's so great that, that you follow Jesus. Listen, people I know with same-sex attraction were not applauded by their community when they came to Christ. We all bear a cross. You need to encourage me as I carry my cross. I need to encourage you. And what do we do? We both carry our cross together. We both lay down our lives at the cross for Christ. And as we struggle to give up things financially, as we struggle to forgive people who hurt us and, and lay our bitterness down, as we struggle to give up those idols that we cling to so tightly, listen, let's share those stories together to encourage each other. But listen, if you have no stories of laying these things down, if you have no stories of any cross that you bear, listen, it could mean this. It could mean you just don't think deeply enough and you need to think deeper about this. But it could also mean this. It could mean that maybe you're not really following Jesus. And so what do you do then? What do you do? You say, man, I don't know if I am actually bearing a cross. I don't know if I have actually taken the cross up to follow Jesus. What do I do? You turn to Jesus. Because verse 11 again says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. All of this for us. Because listen, the whole goal of all of this, of bearing your cross, of following Jesus, the whole goal of the cross is Jesus. That's the reward. The, the reward of turning from, from same-sex attraction is not being straight. That's not the goal. That's not the goal at all. The goal is Jesus. I mean, everything else is such a poor substitute. Yeah, but too bad, maybe they'll miss out on marriage. Who cares? I mean, what? It's such a poor substitute to put anything else to say, well, compared to, listen, compared to Jesus, even the greatest things are poor substitutes. I mean, who cares what you miss out on? You don't miss out on Jesus, and he's worth it. Listen, if you don't want Jesus and you don't want his kingdom, then why would you suppress any desire you have? But if you love Jesus and his kingdom, you'll give up anything to have him. It means being single is worth it. It, it. it means being ridiculed is worth it. It means giving up anything is worth it. I mean, that's the whole story of the gospel. We give up everything because he's worth it. As the worship team comes up, as we close, I want to close with here with some words from Jesus. Jesus says this. 
He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. From now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. I mean, this is Jesus' promise. I mean, that, that he will be faithful and one day you will come, you'll be able to lay that cross down at the foot of Christ and see him and it will be worth it all. It'll be worth it all. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, I pray that even in this moment, God, that we be a people who hear your call to lay it all down for you, to leave it all behind. God, we recognize how costly this is. But I pray that we be drawn to you, that your spirit will remind us even now in this moment that it's worth it, that Lord Jesus, to leave everything behind and to have you is worth it all. Father, I pray for those here this morning, God, who experience same-sex attraction. <coughs> God, I pray that they would see you clearly. They wouldn't feel the need to hide out in this community. But over all that, Lord, God, I pray that they would see your grace. And then it would draw them like it draws us, Lord God, draw us to take up our cross again. Lord God, that you'd make us here a, a church in Muskoka that people look in on and they can't figure out. They can't figure out, man, how can that church be so committed to truth, but they're also the most loving, kind, and sacrificial people we know. God, that we'd be people full of conviction and full of kindness. That we love people enough to speak the truth, but also to walk day by day beside them in the thick and the thin. God, create that in us, and I pray this in Jesus' name. The name that is worth it all. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.